I'll tell you what, Greg, after a long weekend in London, it is just really nice to be doing one of these where we don't have Alejandro involved in this. And I just need to do one of these that I don't feel like tearing my hair out by the oh, end. Oh, so. oh look, I, I think Kevin just, someone just came on the call. It must be Kevin. Oh, Kevin. Yeah, Kevin. Oh, great, it's so good to, to have you. you here, Kevin. I'm really glad that you got to come. Uh, introduce us. What's your usual thing that you like to do? Well, the thing I usually like to do is not get insulted on the podcast I'm guesting on. Oh, son of a bitch. Uh-oh. Oh, what, hey, guys, sorry here? I'm late. My TARDIS was double parked. What happened? Who double booked these two? <laughs> right, I'd like, it was you, wasn't it? Wait, no, don't cut me off with the intro. Today, we travel beyond the wind door. Hello, dear listeners, and welcome back to the third official outing of Beyond the Wind Door, the show where the topics are made up and the points do matter. <laughs> because we are recording this during the month of October, I am contractually obligated to call this our first spooktacular episode, wherein the three pieces of media we are talking about today are all creepy and kooky, mysterious and spooky. Mm, we take We're- all of the boxes. We're doing things a little different today on top of that because our discussion topics today are not all movies. Two of our cohorts suggested horror-spiced movies, but a third suggested a two-part episode from the Doctor Who reboot Series 1. And as a result, that also meant that we've added a fourth member to today's show, a big aficionado of Doctor Who, who will later accompany us on a future show called Greg's Who Homework. And that means it's time to introduce the personnel selected for today's Beyond Team. First, a man that needs no introduction, Dr. Toby Skills Jungius, expert in all things undead and monstrous, better also stop motion. Hello there, I am Dr. Stop Motion Skeleton. That is my official title, and I will accept nothing else. I didn't work six years on skeletons to not be referred to as such. Next up, returning again for the third time, is Alejandro Vargas, our anime and horror savant with the lewd mind. Meow! (laughs) And finally... Our new challenger is a man that dresses up as the Doctor so often, I'm not sure he isn't a Time Lord hidden in plain sight. Welcome, Kevin Vahey. Hello, everybody. Hello, Lee. Wait, wrong Doctor. (laughs) (laughs) They're all the same Doctor. (laughs) Yeah, but I was using the catchphrase of the Doctor that came after the Doctor that's in this two-parter we're going to be discussing. Also, full disclosure, I actually was originally just going to come on for the who thing, but I decided to also watch The Blob and, and the other thing we're discussing because I love both of those too. So, oh, Well, excellent. Out. Friends, welcome to you all. This is going to be a fun new expansion of our experimental little sideshow. This also means that I now need to inform our audience of our topics. Behind door number one, a science fiction horror from 1958, it's The Blob, where Steve McQueen tries to fight Strawberry Jam from space 
and convince us he's a teenager. <laughs> I'm he so does, glad you made do. that joke because I was going to if you didn't. <laughs> he does only one of these things successfully. <laughs> Behind door number two, we have a horror comedy from 1990, Arachnophobia where Jeff Daniels teams up with John Goodman to fight super spiders and small-town small-mindedness. Does Be one of these successfully. <laughs> yes. Indeed. Finally, behind this extra-large door, we have the Doctor Who episodes The Empty Child and The Doctor Dances, where Chris Eccleston teams up with a former pop singer to fight gas mask space zombies and Stephen Moffat's writing style. <laughs> he does one of these successfully. <laughs> Seriously, folks, it sounds like I'm taking the piss, but I can assure you it's all good fun here on the B-Team. That's well it should be. Uh, I like it being the B-Team because since this is beyond the window, that's the literal... Th like, that is the joke. You have identified the joke, Toby. Ah, You've so also explained it, well it done. which makes it significantly less funny. Uh, <laughs> my work is If you have to explain the joke, it's not funny. No, Kevin, we're not talking about the DCAU this time. We're doing Doctor Yeah, I Who. know, I know, but I had to get it out of my system. <laughs> All right, so, Alejandra, tell us more about why you picked The Blob. Every one of you watching this screen, look out, because soon, very soon, the most horrifying monster menace ever conceived will be oozing into this theater. Two teenagers see it first, like a falling star from outer space. Boy, that was close. Come on, I want to see if I can find it. An old man finds it, touches it, and this is the shocking result. From then on, there's no stopping the blob as it spreads from town to town. It's indestructible. It's indescribable. Nothing can stop it. This town is in danger. How can it be stopped? Mob hysteria sweeps one city. Before long, the nation, and then the world could fall before the blood-curdling threat of the Bob. Starring Steve McQueen and a cast of exciting young people. Oh, boy. Um, the Blob <laughs> is not a great movie. It's never scared me. Um, and that was kind of the directive here, to pick things that would be spooky, which is different from horrifying. Spooky and horrifying are similar aesthetics, but very different, like, flavors in your mouth, I guess, mm -hmm. would be the food metaphor, since we're terrible about those here. <laughs> I love food, so that works for me. But, um, yeah, no, The Blob is a, it's a very 1950s, teenagers in their hot rods, drive-in movie experience. And I've always enjoyed it for two things specifically. One, the monster, anytime the monster is on screen, it's legitimately really good. 
Mm, mm, um, and it's not off screen as much as you might think for a movie from that time period. Although, yeah, they do save the budget sometimes. <laughs> and the other thing I've always loved about this movie is the theme song. Oh, yes. <laughs> Something about I, that I, little tune yeah. that they play at the start of the movie is so wrong for the type of movie they're doing. But yeah. it's so wonderful. <laughs> Beware of the blob, it creeps and leaps and glides and slides across the floor, right through the door and all around the wall. A splotch, a blotch, be careful of the blob. It's the sort of original Roger Corman Little Shop of Horrors didn't do that. It's the sort of song that feels like it's at the beginning of a sitcom where at the end they just go, oh, blob, and then (laughs) it plays that over credits. (laughs) Yeah, I was definitely not expecting, like, I knew that this was going to be a different era of this kind of storytelling, but it's just such a cheerful little ditty for a creature from space that, as the sheriff points out towards the end, ate like 40 or 50 people. And they definitely didn't finish it off. Like, they just captured it. They they basically (laughs) froze it and left it in the Arctic, and they were like, as long as the Arctic stays cold, cough, cough, global warming. That's solving the problem once and for all. Yeah, I mean, that is long before global warming. Of course, the less said we, uh, the less we can say about the Blob remake, the better. I think, in my opinion, I have feelings about that one. That, oh, yeah. okay. huh? I do want to, I do want to mention the '80s remake because I have not seen it. Kevin mm-hmm. apparently has. I have, um, and I have feelings about it. Shocked you beat me to that one, Kevin. But anyway, um, <laughs> to be fair, a friend showed horror, it to me, thinking I'd enjoy it. So, within uh, the horror community, the '80s Blob is sort of infamous as like a practical effects like masterclass. So that would kind of put it in the same category as The Thing and American Werewolf in London. We know Mm -hmm. how Greg felt about that movie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. For fuck's sake, we have a doctor over here that specializes in effects that are meant to be, you know, evocative and exciting. And I can Yeah. (laughs) I think she's talking to you, Kevin. My point is is that if I had a greater understanding of what it takes to do these things, I might have a greater appreciation for what it takes to make amazing practical effects. But I'm the story nerd. So if the story doesn't work, then that's the thing that I focus on or doesn't work for me or whatever. I already that's, went that's on a huge enough. rant about that. In yeah, an exactly. ideal world, you can have both. Yes. But... I, I try to go for both as much as I can, but mm. sometimes I get more hung up on the story like Greg does. So I understand. Mm-hmm. And you know what? On this rewatch, because it has been like over a decade since I've watched The Blob, Mm. I did catch a little bit more story stuff. Like the movie really does commit to the whole like cops versus rowdy teenagers thing that was the all the rage then. Mm. There's one line like you'll just it's you blink and you miss it. And the chief of police says about one of his deputies that he still hasn't recovered from the war and is still stuck in that mindset. See, that's definitely a component of what I feel is going on here. And there's a certain irony, I feel, when I'm comparing everything that happens with 
all three of our picks because the first is now a post-World War II but very 50s-esque story and therefore has all of that mindset accompanying it in terms of like, you know, this is the modern world where people don't believe in monsters anymore because human monsters are far more real after two world wars. Whereas you start getting further into the, okay, and then we get into the 90s, and the thing that's terrifying is a thing that does exist in a natural world, but worse, a super spider. We weren't quite in a post-Cold War mindset in 1990, because the Berlin Wall would come down for another year or so. But thematically, arachnophobia does fit in very well with other 90s creature features, good and bad, like Tremors, also in 1990. Anaconda in 1997, Deep Rising in 98, and Deep Blue Sea in 99. Though most of those did come out after the blockbuster success of Jurassic Park in 93. I don't know if that means it crosses over with a post-Cold War mindset, but the things to be afraid of were now natural disasters, or monsters from the natural world, or monsters from space. But you can definitely see some parallels. And then we get all the way into Doctor Who later on, where the thing that's terrifying comes from space, but is somehow even worse than the blob because it has a human form, but it's also taking place during World War II. So you've come full circle. <laughs> Appropriately, the one about time travel loops back to our starting point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> ba -ba -ba. <laughs> You're absolutely right, Alejandro, that this film manages to, in between the hokey moments, actually have something to say, which is this curious tension. You can read into this in so many ways that this is a sort of like Cold War era fear of the insidious threat coming from an external source that is just mm. creeping through the suburbs and absorbing people. And it's a red menace because it's absorbed. Oh God, us. it's a communism metaphor? I did, in fact, do some quick history Googling, and while the Cold War ostensibly was a going concern starting in 1946 and not ending officially till 91, the era of McCarthyism and the Second Red Scare was generally measured between 1947 through 1957, as around this time, the Supreme Court made a number of key rulings that restricted the government in enforcing anti-communist policies. So the timing aligns pretty well with the making and release of this movie. Uh, wow, I hadn't even thought of that. Okay, <laughs> maybe a little, well, not a very good one. Not, not especially. Like it, I, it, I, I will. I, can I say something real quick? Yes. I, there was a detail I actually noticed when I was watching it on uh, the Blu-ray I got for the for this podcast, and it, it was like the first instance you see the blob, it's almost like a slight grayish color, and it's not until after he's absorbed someone that mm. that's when he turns red. Yeah, I love that detail. That, that is the most insidious. It's kind of horrifying thing. when you think about the implications of that. Yes. Yeah. It's also You're a little right. funny to me. Especially given like, the time period. It's, it's a little funny because like in the pre-gray form, it just looks like that gel that you'll get in those like squicky toy packets that are just like mm, a tube mm. filled with gel that you're just supposed to like slide around on things. Mm. Yeah. But if someone took it out of the fucking package, like you always wanted to do as a child, but didn't do because it would have made a big mess and you couldn't get it back in there. Are you saying that this is a PS? 
PSA of what happens if you break one of those toys. It just goes on a rampage, and every time a kid has done that, we just have to send it to the North Pole to freeze. That is exactly what I'm saying, Toby. You understand me perfectly. Okay, so, I just wanted I to make we're sure we're mixing we were on our the same metaphors page. here, folks. <laughs> so hold on a second here. The revelation that some of the spookiness of the movie might have something to do with the Red Scare suddenly puts a moment in the movie into context for me. At first, I was like, this movie feels like something ancient because I can't necessarily understand the context of the society of America at that time. And there's one particular point during like the midpoint of the movie where one of the cops pulls up a microphone and starts speaking in a code on the radio. And then the camera pans down and we can see that the numbers and letters they were saying were just chess notation so that two people can tell each other what moves they're making on their respective chessboards and play even though they're not in the same room. And I couldn't understand why that was supposed to be a big reveal, like something spooky. But if there's like the brief implication that that cop is supposed to be like a Russian spy, then all of a sudden that adds context. Hmm. Like, hmm. Yeah. I never really thought of that, but so yeah, he, neither. That's but, I mean, we're yeah. putting all this thought into it, and it's just a <laughs> dumb, goofy movie where they make goo go backwards by running the film backwards. Pretty yeah. much. And, and also, uh, it's a movie that basically was Steve McQueen's acting debut, and he didn't really, really think too highly of the movie near the end of his life and refused to discuss it in interviews. Yeah, it was so. one of his first movies. That's why he's just playing some random no-name teen. Yeah, It's sort teen of like what quotes. happened with Leprechaun, where Jennifer Aniston is in it. Wow. Right. And, like, it, that didn't mean anything somewhere. when she was in it. <laughs> mm. I didn't realize that that was a Steve. I mean, like, I, I did look a little bit further because I, I know Steve McQueen is an actor, but know nothing about uh, the movies he's been in with the exception of The Great Escape. So mm. that's a fascinating detail there then. It also makes me wonder if, I don't know, is his catchphrase for later movies. <laughs> yeah, because in this film, I said this when I was watching mm. it, that like Steve McQueen's character, who is just called Steve, which I always laugh mm -hmm. at when I see that in films, because it makes me wonder if the person just had trouble remembering their lines and they just said, <laughs> you know what, your character's name is the same as you. The character Steve says upwards of 20 times throughout the movie, I don't know, just in reaction to things. And that's Take what, a drink, everybody. Yeah, it, it really is. And you will be hammered by the time the blob actually takes its first victim. It's, I think, indicative of just why his character is such a nothing character, mm. because he doesn't really have an arc or a development. He's just your upstanding teenage guy who is playing the field with this girl, but this new girl is exactly like, he feels like she's the one. No, you're absolutely right. Is he just playing the field? Is he a stand-up guy? To a certain extent, both him and the girl he's with are like, almost little more than audience surrogates in terms of like, how would you react if these things happen and everything like yeah. that? We don't necessarily get a good sense of who this person is outside of the events of what's going on. It's mm. different when we get to arachnophobia in a little bit, because that mm. does a lot to develop many of its characters. Oh but yeah, here, the contrast is stark. <laughs> in terms of the overall theme, you can see elements of what you eventually understand are horror movie tropes, where everyone's questioning, did you actually see 
what you thought you saw or what did you see or will you actually tell us what you saw the big component of what steve goes through is him questioning everything because even he doesn't necessarily believe in the things that he sees but being the witness to it he's like the one that feels like he has to take the lead and actually do something about it you can draw a direct line from a movie like the blob to classic horror staples where no one believes the protagonist Brody and Jaws, to Charlie Brewster and Fright Night, to Ellen Ripley and Aliens, all the way to 2022, where no one believes Naru when she realizes the existence of the Predator stalking her tribe. There's a weird irony in the whole, the first people that believe him are the other teenagers watching their own scary movie. The ones that we expected would be the secondary antagonists in a other horror movie that the the blob or whatever would kill but instead no they're like the teenagers out having their own fun time causing shenanigans but not serious shenanigans just enough that the cops pull people over and don't trust them later on in the film didn't so they steal it, a car <laughs> did they steal a car i don't I, if they did i missed that part of it i, I kind of missed that too i'm like I, I, I think they're talking about how at one point there was like this cop who oh right uh, like it's like, oh, we can't get our car started, but it was actually someone else's car, and then he helps them get it started. But right, but it was I, just a practical joke, so it wasn't actually Grand Theft Auto. Like they, it was they, a different they were time, folks. They, they, they were just moving the car of a friend of theirs in order to play a prank on him. They weren't like going to take the car to a chop shop, ostensibly. Another weird thing about movies this old is that this is before movies even attempted to capture realism. Mm. Mm -hmm. Everything is heightened. Everything is symbolic. Everyone's acting like parody cartoon characters of the 50s. But it's just played straight. That's sort of like, hey, maybe we should just have people act like people thing didn't catch on for like another decade. Mm. Well, that's the other thing is that towards the end when they're like trying to rally the community... The idea that everybody actually bands together in order to face this threat. Again, I can't tell if that if communities were just stronger during the 50s or if that's part of the unreality to it. That it was like, yeah, yeah, go to the high school to get the thing so he can freeze it or whatever. Does, I, the, does... the main thing I know about this movie is that I love watching the blob roll around and eat things. And it's honestly pretty spooky because they go through like a pretty solid list of ways to stop it. Yeah. Yeah. No. Mm. It, I it, mean, it, explosions, burning it, acid. Like you'd think, like it's only eaten one guy. Mm -hmm. Let's throw a big jar of nasty medical grade acid on it. Nothing doesn't matter. <laughs> Honestly, part of me is wondering if the blob is influential to later horror movies because the trope of throwing acid on things is like apparently so common in horror movies that they make jokes about it in later movies, like specifically Gremlins 2, where there's a big beaker that says, acid, do not throw in face. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But that's Joe Dante's sense of humor in that movie. Yeah, okay. Fair. <laughs> yeah. It's strange because everything with the doctor and his examination of the blob everything about that is advancing the film and its plot quite quickly and then a lot of it is just slowly looking at the building and going like well i can't see the doctor in here 
Let's go check in here. Oh, well, and then that, then his landlord shows up and is like, oh, he might have taken someone else's car. He does that sometimes. She's like giving all the possible explanations for why they're <laughs> making shit up. And it's like, fuck you. Who are you? You haven't been in this movie. Go away. And as far as we know, she doesn't even get eaten for her trouble. So favorite shot of the movie is the blob oozing out of the projection room in the cinema. Yes. Oh, that's that, pretty effective, yeah. The, the projection room moment, I have to admit, was probably my favorite practical effect and also favorite, like, actual scary moment. Because there, it's like, sort of in the same way that the xenomorphs in Alien were able to take small crawl spaces that normal people couldn't necessarily fit in or anything like that, and be able to use that to sneak up on people because it's an ambush predator. Mm. Here, the blob is actually taking advantage of its gelatinous state and able to go through like even a closed vent because it just has to push itself through the small vent openings. Mm. Yeah. There's one line in this that is almost better than it has any right to be in this movie. I know what you're talking about, too. And (laughs) this is the last thing I'll say before I interrupt Alejandra for the hundredth time and just take her own entry away from her. But it's when the teenagers are just trying to figure out how they convince the town. And uh, Steve just says, how do you protect people from something they don't believe in? Mm, Yeah. Cough, cough. (laughs) <laughs> a little bit too topical, exactly. Look, Toby, you can interrupt me all you want because I don't have a lot to say about this movie. I like the theme song, Beware of the Blob, it seeps and creeps and glides and slides across the floor. I love that. I love that. Great way to start a movie. And then there's like cool monster effects and then it's over in like 90 minutes. And it really fucking ends fast. Like they figure out to freeze and then they're done in like five minutes. <laughs> and the last shot of them is a little container in the helicopter dropping it in the Arctic. I'm wondering mm. where they actually dropped it because it looks like the Arctic, but I can't imagine that maybe they just got like a piece of film footage for like, I don't know, an army drop of supplies to some, and then they just put that into the movie. Like, it wouldn't they surprise me if they did that because that kind of stock footage usage was common in those days, if I remember uh, right. So, yeah, okay. Ed Wood was a real trendsetter. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. But, but on the subject of music... Was anyone else really, like, bemused by that moment towards the end where the blob has completely encased the diner? And they're like, oh, everyone's going to die for sure. And everyone's just sort of watching and they're playing really melancholy, sad violin music yeah. in the background. And, and there's, like, red peeking in through the windows and everything. Yeah, it's it's almost like a, this, the mood slime encasing the museum in Ghostbusters 2 a little oh, bit. Oh, that's mm. actually a good pull. Mm. I mean, I love Ghostbusters, too. I, I mean, there's a part in Ghostbusters, too, that even though I'm in my 30s now, still scares me even now, actually. Oh, well, the, so uh, effective Ghostbusters, too, is really underrated. I agree with you, Kevin. <laughs> I'm talking about the scene where the mood slime comes out of the spout into the bathtub to get Dana's baby. Oh. That scene terrified me when I was a kid, and it terrifies me even now as an adult, now that I'm an uncle to an eight-year-old. So, oh, at like, the time we're recording this, it's not just that stuff. the slime is jumping at her, it's like pulling the bathtub, like it's contorting yeah, the bathtub. Yeah, it's convinced that Ivan Reitman missed his calling as the next Sam Raimi, because he balances comedy and horror so well. Mm. You're not wrong. And what about that, like, granny that, like, sort of descends from the sky and just reaches a long hand to oh. grab the baby? Doesn't that happen at one point? Uh, I, well, oh, yes, right. that it is in Ghostbusters yeah. too. Well, that's actually, I think, Peter McNichol and Drag, but yeah. I could have sworn that was some, like, religious nut job. 
No, no, no. It's, uh, Peter, it was a ghost that took the form of Peter McNichols' character and basically dressing like an old-timey nanny. I also find it very amusing. It's a sign of, like, remember when we were talking about in ZOM 100, Bucket List of the Dead, because it's important <laughs> for me to give the entire title of the movie. Where, I've never heard of this movie. Oh, you should listen to our last episode on this, uh, and you should absolutely watch it because it's really good. In that movie, people are savvy enough that they understand, but like, oh, no, these are zombies. And they, they actually call them zombies. They know what zombies are. In the movie The Blob, no one ever refers to it as The Blob or A Blob or whatever. I think I know the. I actually have been reading some of the trivia for this movie. Mm. And uh, apparently one of the reasons for that is because the working original working title for the movie was actually The Glob. Oh, OK. With a G. No. But apparently but apparently was changed to The Blob because of some weird rights reasons or something. Other titles that were considered were like uh, or like the Night of the Creeping Dead or the Glob that Girdled the Globe or something like that. Yeah, weird <laughs> shit like that. So. The Blob is well, perfect. It's a great. Yeah, title. very succinct. You know, let you know who the bad guy is or bad thing is right off the bat. Oh, it's the Blob that's eating the man's hand in like the first f- ten minutes of the movie. I thought it was the cops. <laughs> right? You would think, but Trick no. question. It was both of them. <laughs> The blob oh, was last... allied with the cops the whole time. And then they got rid of the blob when it stopped eating all of their undesirables because they had to cover their tracks. Oh, boy. <laughs> Speaking of, like, 50s movie, there is one person of color in this whole movie, and she's just an extra running out of the theater. <laughs> I'll be honest, I did not even realize that. And believe me, we are going to have a conversation later about how all three of our picks for this podcast are all extremely white pieces of media. (laughs) Oh, regarding the scene where all the extras are pouring out of the movie theater in horror, apparently they were never told what kind of creature they were running from when they (laughs) shot that scene. Okay. So they were practically acting in the dark. Yeah, well, well, I mean, I guess that's a way to make it more real maybe just like run up run out of the theater Mm -hmm. and act terrified and everyone's like picturing whatever they would be most terrified of i don't know (laughs) it worked (laughs) we should move on from my movie because i think we've mined about as much meat out of this blob as possible i think you're right let's Mm, just let's just take it to the arctic and drop it now Let's drop this conversation into the Arctic, where it will eventually metamorphose into the thing. No. Yeah, head cannon. Yeah. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, very good head cannon. The cold oh, made it transform into something that was actually mutated. vulnerable to fire. No, so yeah, the next one was my pick, arachnophobia. The Jennings family has just moved to the small town of Kanaima. Oh, Ross, smell that air. Oh, God. In search of a simpler life. Want to blow up a bullfrog? Okay. It's the perfect place. Goodbye crime, goodbye grime. Except for one pesty little problem. Come with me and look at the web. The web? I have a terrible fear of spiders. Come on, we live in the country now. It's time to work through this irrational, paralyzing terror. It's not irrational. Hollywood Pictures and Amblin Entertainment present Jeff Daniels. Honey, we're in the living room. We need you to kill a spider. And John Goodman. Don't McClintock infestation management. Ooh, that guy's just a spider. Would anybody object if I tore this floor out? I would. False alarm, then lead on. 
There's no spider here. Every so often, in a little town somewhere, there is a health scare. There's a rumor going around that some kind of spider might have killed Sam Metcalf. Doubtful. Spiders make convenient culprits. There's no spider here. I think one of your Venezuelan spiders hitched a ride here. There may be some spiders around here that are very dangerous. Dad, chill out. Just run. They spread out from a central nest in a web-like pattern and dominate the entire area. When that happens, this town is dead. Better encourage my private stock. Hollywood Pictures and Amblin Entertainment present Arachnophobia, Eight Legs, Two Fangs, and an Attitude. Perk up, Lloyd. If we find the spider that did this, you can arrest him. Arachnophobia, a thrillomedy. I don't remember if I saw this in theaters back when it first came out, but I do know that I watched it pretty close to when it came out. And I don't know why I decided to do this. Unlike many, including my wife, I like spiders. I read Charlotte's Web at an early age. I saw the very first 2D animated film back in the day. Oh, wow, look at him now. Zuckerman's famous pig. Zooey, what do you see? The greatest hog in history. Fine swine, wish he was mine. What if he's not so big? He's some terrific, radiant, humble thingamajig of a fine phenomena. My land, isn't he grand? Zuckerman's famous pig. And the entire theme of this is like, it was like, oh, you don't need to be afraid of spiders. Spiders are more afraid of us than they are of you. And no, this has the monster spider, the super aggressive spider that General. wants to kill people. Arachnophobia like, posits, no, fuck them spiders. <laughs> exactly. <Yep>. I, they, <laughs> I haven't, we haven't had a movie that uh, was this uh, mad about spiders since the much later schlocky film Eight-Legged Freaks. I'm Big fan that of that movie. I don't care what anyone says. So I remember seeing this when I was, you know, relatively young in in nineteen in the in the early nineties, and I remember really enjoying it, even though it's a technically horror movie because there are definitely comedic elements to it. I'm not sure if you can say that the comedic elements extend beyond the performance of John Goodman as Delbert the Exterminator. But he is one of my favorite parts of the movie. He is one of mine, too. He is delightful. And I have to say that after having seen it again for the first time in a very long time, like I haven't seen this in over 20 years at this point, but I feel like it still holds up after all this time. Doing a little bit of research into this, Rotten Tomatoes still has it in like the 90s as far as freshness is concerned. Wow. And having seen it, I can't help but compare it to other movies of that time, sort of. It was made, excuse me, it was directed by Frank Marshall, which should make me leery about it because he's all one also directed um, Congo, which is a piece of hot garbage. Indeed. But, Stop eating my sesame cake. Okay. It's hot garbage. <laughs> it's movie. fun hot garbage. But my mm. point is, is that I didn't necessarily like, oh, okay, is is Frank Marshall a good director? I don't know. I haven't, I don't know if I've seen anything else that he's done besides those two movies. But it was partially produced by Steven Spielberg. 
and Kathleen At, Kennedy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Apparently, also, I think uh, Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall are actually married in real life. So. They are married in real life. I don't. I didn't check to see if they were married at that time. Maybe they got together over arachnophobia and decided to make a go of it. Those crazy kids. Well, I mean, they worked with Spielberg on the Indiana Jones movies and such. So, mm -hmm. okay, fair enough. As it turns out, Marshall married Kennedy in '87 but they had long since collaborated on incorporating Amblin Entertainment, the production company most well-known for being co-founded with Steven Spielberg, thanks to its logo being a reference to E.T. And if you're shocked that I don't know these things, or that I might occasionally miss the forest for the trees, remember that the making of movies is not my bailiwick, and there's a lot I wouldn't know about that backstory, unless someone made a movie about it and I watched it. It felt like as I was watching it, I kept comparing it to literally two other Spielberg films in terms of creature work and in terms of characterization, specifically Jaws and Jurassic Park. Yep. And I just had to think to myself, was Spielberg paying attention to the to the making of this movie and like cribbed a few things in order to eventually make Jurassic Park? I think it's more fair to say that Frank Marshall was paying attention to Steven Spielberg and cribbed some notes. I, I, I mean, wouldn't, yeah, okay, that's what yeah. I was thinking. Yes, okay, from a basic standpoint, that would make sense, because Spielberg was very successful at this point, and Arachnophobia was Frank Marshall's directorial debut. The reason I brought it up is that Spielberg hadn't done a monster-focused movie since Jaws, which was also a very serious movie. And there were elements of arachnophobia that made me feel a bit like how Jurassic Park made me feel in terms of its comedic elements and cinematography and tension building. As I get into more later, arachnophobia feels very of its time, the same way Jaws was a 70s movie and E.T. was an 80s movie. Intriguingly, going through the list of movies Amblin had its hands in, this is where I find out that Amblin helped produce Gremlins 2, which came out a month before as well as Noises Off two years later, two of my very favorite movies. I don't think I realized just how large a reach Amblin had. All right, Battle Royale. Gotta learn Shark, from the best anyway. Spider, T-Rex. T-Rex! <laughs> yeah. That's not hard. The spider just is sneaky. <laughs> yeah, okay, the spider has we a don't decent know how chance the spider of not might dying the because though. the T-Rex and the shark don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> but on the other hand, we already know that like thousands of rats can take down an enormous star creature from space in the Suicide Squad, so maybe thousands of spiders can kill a T-Rex. We don't know, I don't. That's a visual that has to exist in some piece of media, right? Like, yeah, maybe. Um. Spider swarm attack? Definitely. Mm -hmm. No, spider swarm attack specifically against a T-Rex. That's the magic combination. I think we may have to pay someone to make that fan art now. <laughs> yep. I, I don't want to rule the roost here. I want other people to talk about their experience of this movie. But just to start us off, I had forgotten that Arachnophobia had a very breathtaking opening. It feels very 90s, and that's, again comparing it to some of the stuff that we saw in Jurassic Park and others like it. Yeah, they, they shot it's, it in Venezuela, so... It's really big, and they went to that giant fucking hole in the ground to do a location shot. Oh, wow. okay. Huh. So some of this is actually where I think Sarah, many years ago, like went on a trip where she was hiking through Venezuela, so 
this might be some of the similar locations that she went through. Oh. And also, uh, because I always forget if I mention it on here at all, earliest memories I have is of our family living in Venezuela. So that was fun. Really nice place, though. We did get carjacked there, so... The start of the movie really does feel like a different movie, though. Mm. A little bit, yeah. Mm. Although, like it, although terrible... it does have a the bit of ironic humor in it, right up from the word go, like where the photographer is in and he's feeling sick and stuff. And the anthropologist or whatever is all like, you can be sick on your own time, Mr. Manley. That's yeah, that's another weird thing. Like, <laughs> the anthropologist is set up as a real dick. I mean, and that's he's just kind of so. not no how he is Toby. later in the movie. Here's the thing about that. And first of all, Julian Sands, again, really good part of this movie in terms of like memorable character actor. But he rests in peace. Oh, he's passed away. I didn't realize he, he that. passed like last year, apparently due to some hiking accident or mm -hmm. something from what I heard. Oh, oh! I yeah. think I remember that. Yeah, yeah. I, I read the news about that on a friend of mine's Facebook because he's a big fan of Julian's as well. And mm. I was like, oh, shit. But well, yeah, he's great in the Wikipedia, it was actually the beginning of this year. He was 65. Like I said, rest, may he rest in peace. R.I.P.D. This Indeed. is part of the reason why I compared it specifically to Jaws and to Jurassic Park, because both of those movies also have an enormous respect for scientists. Jurassic Park is loaded with smart people between Alan Grant, Ellie Statler, and Ian Malcolm. But Jaws also has Matt Hooper, as played by the incomparable Richard Dreyfus. Like, that part of the movie is very character-based, and the third act is very much trying to balance an equal respect for Hooper, Quint, and Brody. But, like, Dreyfus's character is introduced as someone that clearly knows what he's talking about a lot of the time, even if he isn't necessarily right about everything. And it feels like Julian Sands's anthropologist is sort of along those same lines. So if he's a dick to the photographer, it's because we're not necessarily, like the, the photographer is meant to be some sort of like slightly comedic character in his own right, whose only purpose is to be killed off. And then he's the vessel for the spiders infesting a small suburban community. Yeah. I like it. I would like it on the re the record that uh, Sarah didn't watch this with me, but she caught glimpses. And the beginning bit, she was fuming and said, these are bad zoologists because <laughs> they uh, they go into this territory that is just sort of very delicate ecosystem. And it's like, we need to study these creatures. Let's blast some spray into the tree and collect their bodies. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. Oh, God, I could go on about that for ages. What a weird fucking plan. It's like, yeah, we'll mm. just drug them and catch them in these little tray things. It's like, what? What oh, the fuck dead. are you doing? No, they're dead. Like, they're not even drugged because they say, like, are you sure it's dead? It's like, yes, it would kill everything. And then the, the big spider yeah, isn't dead. And that's the thing. It's like, oh, wow. That's... But this is all just set up. This is all just set up because this movie takes place in a very small town in America where Jeff Daniels is becoming a new doctor for the town. And I'll be yeah. frank... That whole plot is really engaging. Yeah, I was so surprised I, I, I will, by it. It's like, this yeah. has nothing to do with the spiders, and yet I am actually quite intrigued. Although, full disclosure, I, I was in the same boat as Greg when I rewatched this movie for the podcast. I hadn't seen it in years, but I had fond memories of watching it when I was a kid. And I totally forgot Jeff Daniels was in this movie. I remember John Goodman, but Jeff Daniels, I couldn't remember. And that, and I feel ashamed of that, not only because Jeff Daniels is one of my favorite actors, but also, like me, he's from Michigan. So I'm no. just, I'm very ashamed of myself for that. It's just fucking wild. Because, like, on paper, Jeff Daniels' dialogue is very much, 
Oh, wife, why'd we have to move out here? Oh, the kids. Oh, my job. He's so whiny. He's such a wanker on paper, but Jeff Daniels... And he talks about his wine cellar. (laughs) Yeah, he has a wine cellar. What a fucking Ponzi hobby to have. I don't know what Jeff Daniels is doing, but I never hate him. I always get the sense that this is just his, like, defense mechanism, and he will step up when it matters. And he does. Eventual, like, like he is definitely the one. Be like, we need to do an autopsy. We need to not ignore this. He's the one that's constantly being ignored by again small town parochialness. It feels like this might be the beta of some of the later stuff of the '90s depiction of dad figures and everything like that. Mm. Like this was influential in that regard. But I remember that Jeff Daniels was in that because that whole ending sequence of Jeff with the lighter and the spray can going after the spider is like seared into my memory. And that whole, the itsy bitsy spider went up the water spout. That's the thing I remembered most from the movie, apart from, you know, all the John Goodman stuff is like, yeah, I know, I'm bad. (laughs) We'll get back to the finale, but like, oh my God, what the, that is the most dramatic representation of a guy freaking out and trying to get rid of a spider in his house I've ever seen on screen. It's fantastic. Yeah. Hint, yeah. Name of the movie is arachnophobia. Being afraid of spiders is a major component. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I first of all, let me thank you, Greg, for putting this on our viewing schedule mm. as a recovering arachnophobe. I didn't know <laughs> that. Okay. Oh, I didn't either. Same, Toby. Big same. Yeah. And in fact, I've gotten a lot better at it. We've actually got a collection of spiders who have just been, it's that time of year, so they're coming inside and I've surprised at how little they're actually facing me but in the past i was very afraid of them and i was quite surprised that the story jeff daniels's character says about how he was really young and in the middle of the night a spider just crept onto him was very similar to what happened to me Mm. where i just woke up in the middle of the night for no reason like i was just like it was an hour I wasn't familiar with and I didn't know why I was awake and I just felt like a little brush against my leg and I just sort of lifted the duvet and as I was there I just saw something with thin long legs and a huge body and it was just on my bare skin and I just leapt out of bed and that instilled a fear for a long time. So when he described that for all his wine cellars and everything about him at that moment, it's like, I feel you, man. (laughs) Yeah. It's intriguing that Alejandro, you were the one that brought up how, how unusually compelling the story about the doctor was. Yeah, no, it's, uh, he moves into town and then like the guy he was supposed to replace, because think about it. There's not, like, a system in place for, like, oh, if the small-town doctor dies, the hospital will just send another one. No, people have to just set that up themselves and hope they get to it before the small-town doctor dies. Mm -hmm. So he shows up, and the guy's like, if I retire, I'm gonna die, because all my friends died after they retired. So he doesn't retire, and the guy's like, well, fuck, we can't afford the mortgage on this place without me having actual patience. And then this other lady from town is like, hey, you, handsome new doctor, you're going to be my pet project. I'm going to introduce you to the whole town. She is the best She's character, delightful. and I was so sad when she died. Me too. Yeah, well, that's the thing, is that her, her one ally in town is the first victim 
or at least the first victim in town. We're not counting the, the photographer. That's what kind of sets up the whole, Dr. Ross Jennings is going around going, we need to be afraid of spiders. We need to do autopsies. And nobody trusts him because he's Dr. Death. Yeah. And, and also the he's fact that it's implied town. he's from the city, so they don't, are mistrustful of them city folk. Yeah. The sheriff if, sucks. If you want to see Yeah, the version, sheriff definitely sucks. And it's funny you say that because there was actually a scene that they cut from the movie for pacing reasons where he gets killed by the spiders. And a lot uh, of people are pissed about that, including <laughs> myself. <laughs> if you want to see a movie that is basically, okay, not exactly the version of arachnophobia without the spiders, but like big city doctor moves into small town, then you should watch Doc Hollywood with Michael J. Fox. I remember that movie. <laughs> the movie Doc Hollywood is more sympathetic to small town people in general teaching Fox's doctor that he has some lessons to learn. But there's definitely some of the same elements in that movie as this one, particularly in regards to the city doctor and the country doctor. I'd have to rewatch it to see if it still holds up, but Rotten Tomatoes has it as a 69% freshness, so nice. Wait, isn't Michael J. Fox in Arachnophobia? There's something he's in that's on the... They're watching TV, and when they come in for the big finale... Yeah, that's of... that's a that's a TV show that Michael J. Fox was on. Okay, yeah, I think yeah. it was, so it I can't remember the film. name of the show he was, was on, but curious, he was shooting yeah. it around the same time he did the first yeah. Back to the Future. So yeah, that yeah. it's called Family Ties. I that's watched it. it as a kid growing up, and yeah, Michael J. Fox plays like the young son of the family who is also an annoying Republican. So when Oof. he plays a doctor in Doc Hollywood, there's this whole element of like. Yeah, I know. He's he's young and hip and rich and coming, and he wants to be a doctor because he wants to be rich. He wants to actually be a plastic surgeon, not an actual doctor. And this small town teaches him to actually care about his patients and want them to do well. But he's still running up to, like, the small town doctor that, you know, doesn't necessarily know what he's doing and has a very closed mindset. Again, there are parallels between that and this. Speaking of parallels, talking of parallels, there's another parallel between Family Ties and another horror movie franchise. Michael Gross plays the father in Family Ties who plays Bert Gummer or whatever in the Tremors movies. Oh my God, you're right. Holy shit. Yeah. Which is a child, another childhood favorite of mine. Tremors <laughs> is the movie that this most reminded me of, where it's like there's like yeah. a solid monster plot going on, but there's also mm-hmm. just all these characters mm. that are way better than they have any right to be. This is a exactly. monster movie. I don't have to care about the meat. Mm. Yeah, like, yeah. you could it's you could d- put in the bare work and we would still be having a fun time, but you put the work in and I was We're having that. a better time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which makes me all the more skeptical about the fact that apparently it was announced last year in 2022 that they might be considering doing a remake of Arachnophobia. Frank Marshall is going to be producing it, but he's not going to be directing it. But the person who's writing and directing it is responsible for the paranormal activity sequels. So it won't work because the practical stuff in this is really good because I kept second guessing when they were using real spiders and when Mm, it was probably some like a prop just being flung at someone or (laughs) like a model because I'm sure that there would be some puppeteering work being done at one there point should have, or there should, Yeah, I think there was. In fact, uh, the person who provided the live spiders for the series is the same person who provided the spiders for the uh, scene where the spider bites Peter Parker in the original Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie. Wow. He's, he's basically made it his career to provide spiders for productions of movies. So he's and the Spider-Man. And the original Spider-Man <laughs> are in his resume. Isn't this fucking amazing? 
Kevin is a hell of a guest with all this background information and trivia he just has off the cuff. He fills in a lot of details in this show that would otherwise get missed, even with the rest of us contributing what we do. This is what you can expect from the B-Team. We bring in the right people for the mission. So I was kind of in the same boat as Toby with this movie, where, like, I heard of this movie as a kid, but uh, at, like, five years old, I had a nightmare about a spider killing me. It was really weird. Oh. Um, and I distinctly remember... <laughs> oh, I'm gonna stop you. I remember thinking spiders were really fucking cool before that nightmare, and then, like, they terrified me. So, like, I just didn't go out of my way to watch it. I always got it confused with this other movie someone told me was the scariest movie they saw called Along Came a Spider. That's that has nothing on... to do with spiders, but... I am so glad I watched this movie now as an adult, because, Toby, yeah, I've mellowed on the spiders. I understand their place in the ecosystem. I understand that I can take them. (laughs) If if anything, this movie kind of has some stuff in common with a a a 1977 horror film called Kingdom of the Spiders that stars William Shatner. I watched a lot of B-movies growing up. I remember. I actually remember seeing Kingdom of the Spiders. That had a really freaky ending. Yeah, my my brother showed me a lot of B movie schlock growing up. So the other thing, the only thing I was going to say is that because along came a spider got suddenly brought up, all I can picture is this different version of the movie where Morgan Freeman is narrating what's going on with the spiders. <laughs> Jesus, March of the Spiders. This film is a celebration of the outdoor world of nature and wilderness, and of the overwhelming evidence that shows how much we benefit from spending time in nature. I happen to like spiders. <laughs> that brings that gives new meaning to the uh, movie Happy Feet. Oh, God. <laughs> That's horrible, dude. <laughs> Someone make a movie about a tap-dancing spider. I'd watch it. <laughs> well, we know you would. We know your feelings about the spider from the bad guys. I okay, you just had to call yet. out my furry tendencies there, Toby. You just had to do that. Fuck's sake, we didn't even mention the early scene where Dr. Jennings making love to his wife is juxtaposed with the Venezuelan spider apparently getting it on with a local house spider. Damn. Speaking yep. <laughs> of, movie did not need the scene where you just watch this girl, like, rub her tits in the shower. Yeah. Fly, like, yeah. No, movie, you're already pushing it with the young virginal daughter in the shower scene. Do yeah. not show me tits, okay? Yeah. And specifically the spider going down, like, between, and it, it's weird. It, it's very strange. And the fact that the, like, girl afterwards is, like, you know, she's screaming because there's this fuck-off big spider that was in the shower. And we've all been there. She goes out screaming, and then her dad comes, and then she screams just as intensely because, ah, oh, my dad can see me, and it's just sort of like, we didn't this need that. This is a that. comedy bit, but the joke isn't funny. Yeah. Yeah, even though, yeah. even though that scene is considered a signature scene of the movie, unfortunately. Um, um, unfortunately, like, as I mentioned a moment ago, while I enjoyed the movie, I wouldn't really call it that funny a comedy, again, except for every time John Goodman is on screen, because he's playing a character that's just so fun. Oh, yeah. He's, <laughs> it's like he's a Coen Brothers character in this movie, a little bit. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Especially he when he's like, just like rock and roll. 
And I didn't actually like one of the few moments that was definitely supposed to be funny, which is that the uh, the coroner and his wife, played by Roy Brocksmith and Kathy Kinney, Kathy I know mostly from the Drew Carey show, yeah. the joke there is that they're fat people, and so therefore they're like taking a whole bunch of food away from the party, and then the way that they die is that a spider climbs into the enormous tub of popcorn that they're eating while watching Wheel of Fortune. I'm just like, okay, fuck you, movie. But that's yeah, that uh, nice living that best life. Fuck off with this Seeing Roy shit. Brocksmith, I was like, I know this man. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh shit, this guy was in like one scene of, uh, what's that Arnold Schwarzenegger movie where he has no memory? Total Recall. Oh yes, no, you're absolutely yeah, he's right. He's in that one he scene in Total familiar. Recall. He's fucking amazing. And then I looked up his IMDb. He's been in like twenty movies. I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah, no, this <laughs> he's basically that guy. I mentioned Julian that. Sands was like that for me for a while too. Like, wait a minute, that guy. So <laughs> I mentioned that while I was watching it and commenting along in the Discord that Arachnophobia is one of those movies that has a shocking number of like solid character actors that have been in a lot of other things. That includes the sheriff, that includes the uh, coroner, Roy Brocksmith. James Handy plays the other doctor working with Jennings, whom some might remember as an FBI agent from The Rocketeer, or the priest in Unbreakable, but who I will always remember as Congressman Bruno from two episodes of The West Wing. Put a penny in the jar. For a long moment, I thought the coach was played by Brian Dennehy, but was in fact character actor Peter Jason, who has been in more movies, TV roles, and voice acting roles than I can count, and who I discovered on exploration was hiding in plain sight as the buffoon character Con Stapleton throughout the entire run of Deadwood. As I said, Kathy Kinney is a comedian that's been in a number of things that I've seen. That's the thing, is that if the hallmark of your movie is not just spiders, but also solid character work. You bring in a bunch of people that know what they're doing. Speaking mm. of that coach, mm. that was another comedy scene that just didn't land, where he has to, like, feel up the gonads of the entire sports team. Yeah, the yeah. whole turn-your-head-and-cough thing. Like, yeah. yeah, like, I again, I get the joke they're going for, but it's not actually funny. Mm. Also, the last one that he does it to is ends up being a victim of the spider yeah because like that's sort of it's playing into the narrative that like oh the new doctor doesn't know what he's doing because every time he checks on someone they end up dying and no one takes a single moment to just sort of inspect the body of someone including a teenage boy in the prime of his life it's just like Yep, and we're just going to assume that there's no foul play here. You have to be a heart (laughs) attack, because that's what kills everybody. Not to bring the room down, but I actually had a friend who was in his 20s who succumbed to a heart attack, so that kind of hit me a little harder than I would have liked, but... okay. You can cut that out if you want to. Heart attack? (laughs) I don't even know what caused it either, I just know he had one, but... Mm. One thing I would bring up about the film having a lot of consideration put into the parts that it didn't need to put consideration into is that the fact that it's called arachnophobia is a really good way of actually expanding it to, it's not just spiders with an explanation mark. It could have just been called that, like with mm-hmm. three ex- explanation marks if it... Like it did. 
Well, it would have been <laughs> called that if it was made back during the 70s or something like mm. that. But specifically drawing attention to, it's not even necessarily the spiders, it's the fear of them. And the fact that the old doctor is delaying his retirement because he mm. fears what it will happen if he does that. And on the night that he gets bitten, you see he is being obsessed about going on the treadmill and he is just trying to delay the Reaper for as long as possible. It's this idea that all of these people are being ruled by fear in some way or another. Mm. I think that's part of the reason why John Goodman's character stands out so much, because he seems to be the one person that's not afraid of anything. He's just like, oh, okay, that's a spider. I'm going to spray it now. Like I said, a Coen Brothers character. In this movie. <laughs> he's definitely playing someone on the spectrum. That moment when they're like doing the map and he's like, this is fun. I did this one over here. Let me draw a little circle on this map. <laughs> yeah, this yeah I love that moment. That, that is such a neurodivergent it's... moment. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's me. It's, it's, it's something me. I do. It's funny how he's someone who feels like he's this brash blowhard who should have the wind yeah. taken out of his sails, mm. but the film doesn't actually elect to do that. It just yeah. says, like, no, this guy is here to do a job, and he may not necessarily be tuned into the conversation at certain times, but yeah. he's here to do his job. And when he understands just how serious it is, he doesn't flee in yeah. terror he doubles down and he comes yeah. back with the equipment to deal with it yeah, like no you definitely like, don't okay, have okay i'm gonna have to get the break out the good stuff now you don't yeah. have termites you just have bad wood what do you do about bad wood i don't know you get rid of it <laughs> <laughs> i mean and at the end of the movie you know after jeff daniels has basically plugged the general spider and you know he just all of a sudden he just comes out of nowhere and he's like yep thank me later such a wild ending action scene, though. So like, good. It's all but it works so well. Amazing. Frank Marshall just pulled that off so well with that. I love and when he, he like, he's like going through the bottles to throw, and he's like, no, that's the good stuff. <laughs> no, not the Chateau. <laughs> I, I, is it, is it I the Chateau they're drinking at the end? <laughs> I, I think it might be, actually. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, Edgar Wright took inspiration from that with the, the records that they throw at the zombies in Shaun mm. of the Dead. Oh, um, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised by that. Yeah. I loved that moment, too. I haven't but, seen that movie in years, though. I need to rewatch it. So yeah, that finale, it, it lacks a good, you know, uh, smile, you son of a bitch, cathartic line. But I must say, I do really like him just mouthing, therapy <laughs> yeah. I, I think I, I think although I think my favorite moment is after he shoots the general and it lands in the nest and it starts burning up it just goes <laughs> just, yeah I well, it was that. fucking terrifying when he set the spider on fire and it starts running around anyway yeah. and it's all like <laughs> you fool you just made it angry <laughs> it's all like because like that's the major that's the major weakness of bugs is the fact that because they are all exoskeleton they don't have any like fat or skin to protect yeah. them from fire and mm -hmm. they just light up in no time. So the fact that the spider is on fire and still going terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> so Probably here's some a kind weird... of spider adrenaline it's running on. Here's a weird question: If Jaws is centered around its three brave men, Quint, Brody, and Hooper. Are the three people, like, quote-unquote, heroes of arachnophobia actually Jeff Daniels, Julian Sands, and John Goodman? Shit! <laughs> Maybe. 
Because I argue that the, the other guy who contacts the... Julian Sands's character about the spiders being infesting the small town is a little more in that in, in a part I, of the hero group. That's what but, I would say is that yeah. he's a bit more. It's almost like the head anthropologist is like the yeah. mayor or something. Because mm. I'm not even sure what his plan was. He goes in and he just <laughs> like plucks the web and he says like dinner's served and then uh, the spider lunges on him. It's like ah, oh, this is not my plan at all. It's like. You expect to happen. He is supposed to be the spider expert, so you'd think he would have been prepared for literally poking the bear. The the world's greatest expert on being killed. (laughs) (laughs) Kevin, thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, I got nothing more on this movie. Uh, it was fun. I enjoyed yeah, it. I really I'm glad enjoyed I saw it. it. I, I'm glad I got to rewatch it again. It's been it was great fun, and you know I, maybe maybe if my nephew isn't too scared, maybe I'll show it to him sometime. I, it I seems like it'd be good. For he'd probably get a kick out of it. Yeah, I absolutely recommend it. And next time I hang out with my parents-in-law for like a long weekend, I'm going to put this on the film screening because I know that my uh, father-in-law would really enjoy this. So oh, he, yeah, he uh, probably would. The tone of the final scene of just a gag of them going to San Francisco and an earthquake happens and it's just like, hey, we're barely on and, the Richter And that Tony scale. Bennett song, I left my heart in San Francisco. And I guess it's one of those things of just like, it's comparing and contrasting that like these guys have become habituated to this. So it's not really a big concern for them. And that's comparing, contrasting how the natural force of just fucking spiders is much more of a deal. Whereas in another movie, earthquakes would be the natural force that is the force of terror. But they're like, eh, it's fine. Uh, the only other piece of trivia that I have for this, since we kept on focusing on those little moments, something I had utterly forgotten until we watched it. The assistant to the anthropologist called Higueras by the anthropologist and played by Dominican character actor Juan Fernandez goes uncredited in the film. But the thing that I remember him best from, I, I don't know how you take this. I don't know that it's that great a, a movie series to begin with, but he plays the lead henchman in Crocodile Dundee 2. Basically oh, the guy... I knew I recognized him. Hit. Yes. Yeah, Son he, of a he, bitch. He plays the dragon to the big bad in Crocodile yep. Dundee 2. I, so knew, I, I was like, I know that face. I know that fucking face. Why do I know that fucking face? Because I great, love the Crocodile Dundee movies. The great Actually, that was my first there? exposure to Australian culture, so take that as you will. Um, enough. The great irony there is that in both this movie and in Crocodile Dundee 2, the name of the character is Miguel. No. Yeah, probably character. more a coincidence, really. But, no. Oh, I mean, yeah, it's not his... It's not like, uh, you know, where they name the character the same name as the name of the actor, because, as I said, the actor's name is Juan Fernandez. He's been in only a few actual um, American movies, mostly been in uh, other foreign stuff and everything like that. I don't know how big an actor he was, but he had a very memorable face, which is why I was like, yeah. I've seen this guy before, and I had to immediately look it up. Yeah. I was like, oh, right, he's that guy. Yep, I, I love it when they, it's like, oh, that guy. Kind of thing. I love doing that with movies sometimes. Speaking of memorable faces, I must say, yes, the cameo. This um, is my kitty, Trouble. She's adorable. I, forget I still can't I get over the fact this. you have a cat called Trouble. It's adorable. I, I also had a cat called Trouble. We I, I loved her. I We had two cats. One was called Trouble, one was called Mischief. Mm. Um yeah, that warms it's funny my heart. That you had a cat called cat Mischief. Called... Yeah, it warms my heart. Uh, my brother and his family had a cat named Loki. So. She has absolutely oh. no nose. <laughs> oh, 
So you can just boop her, uh, boop where her nose is supposed to be instead. Oh, a different name you could have given her if she was a boy is Krillin. There you go. <laughs> that's such a cut. <laughs> oh, God. So that's part one. And yes, we really did go on to talk about Doctor Who for about an hour, thanks to Toby and Kevin. So look forward to that next time. I couldn't think of an appropriately specifically spooky song that meant a lot to me. So instead, I decided to go with music that had spooky vibes that came out the same year as Arachnophobia. Also, like the song for part two, it was a song that I utterly missed when it was first popular, and found many years later to appreciate. Next week, more Steamheart, followed by our spooktacular part two. Until next time, enjoy the silence. Silence
Hawaii is warm and slightly sticky all the time. Hawaii definitely has a smell. The air is sweet. I did not have like the best of times the last time I was here and definitely felt a little triggered with that smell. And my wife was going, oh, it smells like home, right? And like she's bursting Mm -hmm. into tears with joy. And I'm like, ah, Hawaii, we meet again. One of my favorite things about you is how you do not enjoy this paradise. When talking to people, I feel like I've told them, oh, I've gone on a trip to heaven and I don't like it that much. And people are like, what are you crazy? But there is the resort Hawaii. And then there is the real Hawaii. It's a place where you you constantly have to think about keeping the nature out of the house. And if you are not eternally vigilant about that, the nature will be in the house and will really ruin your day. Okay. The resorts maintain an army of gardeners to try to keep everything nice and manicured and not horrifying. But if you're living somewhere where you don't have an army of gardeners to say sweep the spiders off of everything you know what you will end up with spiders on everything oh i hate it this is why i am very happy that you enjoy hawaii when you come yeah but like you are staying in places where they have employees whose entire job is get rid of all the spiders i wish you so stop people saying come it. back please stop sa- <laughs> can you just say it something else now instead of that exact phrase but yeah (laughs) stop sending me images stop it stop that without a doubt some very significant portion of my brain has been set aside now to train constantly on recognize the slight shimmer in the sunlight of a spider web (laughs) between any two objects that are closer than eight feet together any two trees keep in mind this is a tropical jungle don't walk into one of these webs that feel like they're made of steel and have a spider the size of your fist in the center of them it's like Why that do is you a have bad to day describing this <laughs> you didn't need that part you know all i want to say don't to believe cortexans, me <laughs> I look everyone believes you now all right cortexans if you are uncontrollably itching right now know that i'm with you right this is not what i want my wife none of her family none of the local nobody even mentions the spiders whenever i mention them they're like oh i guess there's a lot of it's like don't they don't even see them because what they're concerned with are the centipedes right which is also extremely alarming all of this now we can just let's just go back to calling this the nature i preferred that well i have definitely had to kill three of the natures then that were longer and thicker than my fingers in the house which were just waiting to bite me with their hundred nature legs and right. like we haven't even discussed the jellyfish jellyfish i'm good to talk about they don't creep like, me out but, but that's avoidable right you go oh yeah the sea it's filled with lovecraftian monsters well you know just don't go in there great problem solved well the way to avoid the spiders and the centipedes is just to go in the sea (laughs) (laughs) that's how you do that my perspective on hawaii is it's the kind of place where you really just don't want to sit on a toilet without thoroughly inspecting it first for many reasons this is your counterattack to anybody that ever says to you why don't you love hawaii
the cows I love.